Chapter Six, Part One of What I Believe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Believe by Count Leo Tolstoy, translated from the Russian by Konstantin Popov. Chapter Six, Part One. Now it has grown clear to me that Christ's law is truly His law, and not the mixed law of Moses and Christ. The claim of His doctrine distinctly repudiates the claim of the Mosaic law, and consequently, instead of the obscurity, diffuseness, and inconsistency that I had previously found in the Gospels, they now combine to form an indissoluble whole and the basis or central maxim of the entire doctrine is expressed in the simple, clear, and perfectly intelligible five commandments of Christ, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 48, which I had hitherto failed to apprehend. Mention is made in all the Gospels of the commandments of Christ, and their fulfilment is enjoined. All theologians speak of the commandments of Christ, but I never knew what these commandments were. I supposed the commandment of Christ to be the exhortation to love God and our neighbour as ourselves. I did not see that this could not be the commandment of Christ, seeing that it was a commandment given to the ancient Hebrews, see Deuteronomy and Leviticus. On reading the words, Whoever, therefore, shall break one of these commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5 verse 19 I thought they referred to the Mosaic law. It never occurred to me that the new commandments of Christ were clearly and distinctly expressed in verses 21 to 48 of the fifth chapter of St. Matthew. Nor did I notice that by the words, You have heard that it has been said, but I say to you, Christ gives us new and most definite commandments. Annexed to the five quotations of the Mosaic law, reckoning the two quotations that refer to adultery as one, we find five new and definite commandments of Christ. I had often heard about the Beatitudes, and had met with the enumeration and explanation of them in the course of the religious instruction given to me in my youth, but I never heard a word about the commandments of Christ. To my great surprise, I had to discover them, I shall now point out what led me to the discovery. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26, we read, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not kill, and whoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 23. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the judgment. But whoever shall say, You fall, shall be in danger of hell-fire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, 
and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go your way, first to be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly, while you are on the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge deliver you to the officer, and you be cast into prison. Truly I say to you, you shall by no means come out from there until you have paid the last kopeck. On a clear comprehension of the doctrine of non-resistance, it seemed to me that the text quoted above must have the same application to life as that doctrine. I had formerly considered these words as meaning that we were to avoid all anger against a fellow creature, that we were never to use abusive language, and that we were to live at peace with all, not excepting any. But there stood a clause in the text which excluded all possibility of thus understanding it. It is said, Whoever is angry with his brother without cause, and the idea of unconditional peace is annulled by the last italicized words. They puzzled me. I sought for a solution of my doubts in theological commentaries, but to my surprise I found that the interpretation of the fathers of the church were especially directed towards defining the cases in which anger may be excused and cannot be excused. Laying particular stress on the words without a cause, commentators tell us the meaning of the text is that we are never to wound a man's feelings causelessly, nor use abusive language, but add that anger is not always unjust, and in support of that opinion they cite instances of the anger of the apostles and the saints. I was obliged to acknowledge that, though contrary to the whole spirit of the gospel, the interpretation of the fathers, by which anger is accounted justifiable when, to use their own expression, it is to the glory of God, was consistent, being based on the words without a cause, which we find in verse 22. This clause entirely altered the sense of the saying. Do not be angry without a cause. Christ exhorts us to forgive all, to forgive without end. Christ himself forgave, and when led away to be crucified, reproved Peter for defending him against Malchus and yet it would seem that Peter had good cause for anger. And the same Christ exhorts all men not to be angry without a cause, thus justifying anger, if there is a reason for it, if it is not causeless. Isn't it as if Christ, who came to preach peace to all simple-minded men, had, on second thoughts, added the words, without a cause, to show that this precept did not apply to all cases indiscriminately, that anger might sometimes be justifiable. Commentators tell us that anger may be justifiable. But, I said to myself, can any man be a fit judge of the reasonableness of his anger? Never yet have I seen an angry man who did not consider himself perfectly just in his anger. Each thinks his anger both lawful and necessary. The words, without a cause, seem entirely to destroy the meaning of the text. 
but they were in the gospel, and I could not set them aside. And yet it came to much the same as if to the saying, Love your neighbour, were added the words, Your neighbour who pleases you. The words, without a cause, destroyed the significance of the whole text for me. Verses 23 and 24, in which we read that before praying we must be at peace with him who has something against us, which would have had a direct, obligatory sense without the words, without a cause, now acquired a conditional meaning. It seemed to me that Christ must have meant to forgive all anger, all ill-will, and in order to suppress it had enjoined each person, before he brings his gift to the altar, that is, before he draws near to God, to think upon whether there is any man who is angry with him, and if there is someone, he must be reconciled to him first, and then he may bring his gift to the altar, or pray. It seemed thus to me, but, according to all commentaries, the sense of the passage was conditional. In all commentaries we are told that we must try to be at peace with all men, but if that is impossible, on account of the perversity of our adversary, we must be at peace with him in mind, in our thoughts, and then his enmity will be no barrier to our prayer. Moreover, the words that declare that whoever shall say Raka, or you fall, commits a great sin, always seemed most strange and unintelligible to me. If the words forbid abusive language, why are such weak epithets chosen, which can hardly be reckoned terms of abuse? And why was there so awful a threat against one who might, perhaps inadvertently, use as inoffensive a word as Raka, that is, a worthless fellow? This seemed incomprehensible to me. I felt sure that there was the same misunderstanding here as I had found in the words, Do not judge. I felt that a simple, definite, and highly important commandment, which all have it in their power to fulfil, had been perverted, as in the preceding instance, into something almost incomprehensible. I felt sure that Christ had not used the words, Be reconciled to your brother, in the sense now given to them by our commentators, be reconciled to your brother in mind. Reconciled in mind! What can that mean? I thought that Christ meant exactly what he expressed in the words of the prophet, I will have mercy, that is, love to all men, and not sacrifice. And therefore, if you wish to find favour in God's sight, before repeating your morning and evening prayer, or before attending public worship, reflect whether any one is angry with you, and if such a one can be found, go and be reconciled to him first, and then you may come and pray. Let your reconciliation not be in mind only. I saw that the interpretation, which destroyed the direct and clear meaning of the text, was based on the words, without a cause. Their omission would render the whole perfectly clear. But the canonical gospel, in which stand the words without a cause, and all commentaries upon it, were contrary to my interpretation. 
Had I chosen arbitrarily to alter the sense of the passage, I might have done so with any other text as well, and might not other interpreters have done so too. All the difficulty lay in one little clause. If this clause were removed, all would be clear. So I endeavoured to find some philological explanation of the words that should not destroy the sense of the text. On consulting the dictionary, I saw the Greek word is icon, and that it likewise means purposelessly, thoughtlessly. I again read the text over attentively to see if any other meaning could be given to it, but found that the clause was evidently correct. I consulted the Greek dictionary, and the meaning given to the word was the same. I consulted the context, but the word is only used once in the Gospels, in the passage in question. We find it several times in the epistles, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 2, it is used in the same sense. Therefore there seemed to be no other possible rendering of the text, and I found myself obliged to believe that Christ said, Do not be angry without a cause. I must confess that, to believe in Christ's having uttered so indefinite a saying, which admits of an interpretation that reduces it to a mere nothing, seemed to me equivalent to an entire renunciation of the gospel itself. A last hope was left to me. Was this clause to be found in all the transcripts of the gospel? I examined various translations. I looked in Griesbach's edition of the gospels, in which he enumerates all the transcripts in which a similar expression is used, and I found, to my great joy, that there were several references attached to this particular text. I examined them, and found that they referred to the very words without a cause. In the greater number of the transcripts of the gospel, and in the commentaries of the fathers of the church, these words are omitted. Thus, the majority understood the text as I do. I then consulted the first transcript of Tischendorf, but the words are not there. The shortest way to solve the problem would have been to look in Luther's translation of the gospel, but the words are not to be found there either. The clause, which so entirely destroys the sense of Christ's doctrine, was an addition made in the fifth century, and is not to be found in any of the most trustworthy transcripts of the gospel. Someone had inserted the clause, and others had approved of it, and then tried to explain it. Christ never could have added so monstrous a clause, and the simple, direct meaning of the text, which had first struck me, and must strike others, is the true one. Nor is this all, for no sooner did I understand that Christ's words forbade anger against any person whatever, than the command not to call a fellow-creature raka, or you fool, struck me in a new light, and I could no longer consider it as being intended to forbid the use of abusive language. The untranslated word raka opened my eyes to the true sense. The word raka means trampled upon, set at naught, made of no account. The word rak is a word very generally used, and it signifies accepting, only not. 
Raka, therefore, means a man unworthy of the title of man. We find the plural, Rakim, used in the book of Judges, chapter 9, verse 4, in the sense of lost. So this is the word we are forbidden by Christ to use in speaking of a fellow creature. In the same manner, he forbids our saying, You fool, words by which we may consider ourselves justified in setting aside our duty toward our neighbor. We give way to anger, wrong others, and allege for our justification that the man who has excited our anger is a lost man or a fool, and these are the epithets that we are forbidden by Christ to apply to any man. He forbids our giving way to anger against our fellow creatures. He forbids our justifying our anger by calling its object a lost man or a fool. And now, in the place of an indistinct, indefinite and insignificant expression, subject to countless arbitrary interpretations, the first simple clear and distinct commandment of Christ arose before me, as contained in verses 21 to 26. Be at peace with all men, and never consider your anger as just. Never look upon any man as worthless or a fool, neither call him such. Not only shall you never think yourself justified in your anger, but also you shall never consider your brother's anger as causeless. And therefore, if there is one who is angry with you, even if it is without a cause, go and be reconciled to him before praying. Endeavour to destroy all enmity between yourself and others, that their enmity may not grow and destroy you. And now the second commandment of Christ, which also begins with a reference to the ancient law, grew clear to me also. Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not commit adultery. Exodus chapter 20, verses 14 to 28. But I say to you, that whoever looks on a woman to lust after her, has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye offends you, Pluck it out, and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you, for it is profitable for you that one of your members should perish, and not that your whole body should be cast into hell. It has been said, Whoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 But I say to you, that whoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever shall marry a divorced woman commits adultery. I understood these words to signify that no man must ever admit, even in thought, the possibility of leaving the woman he was first united to for another, a thing that is permitted by the Mosaic law. As in his first commandment against anger, we are advised to stifle the feeling in its birth, the advice being further exemplified by the comparison of the man delivered up to the judge. 
So here Christ says that fornication is the consequence of men and women letting their thoughts dwell on sexual relations, and to avoid this we must set aside all that can excite such thoughts, and when once united to a woman we must never leave her, under any pretext whatever, because this opens the door to sinful indulgence. I was struck by the wisdom of the saying. It tends to do away with all the evils resulting from sexual relations. Men and women are to avoid all that can excite sensuality, being fully aware that nothing is more conducive to dissensions in the world than carnal pleasures, and knowing also that the law of nature is that the race should live together in couples, united in bonds that cannot be dissolved. In the Sermon on the Mount, the words, saving for the cause of fornication, which had always seemed strange to me, struck me still more forcibly when I saw that they were considered as permitting divorce if the wife had committed adultery. Besides there being something unworthy in the very way the idea is expressed, and in this strange exception standing side by side with the most important principles that the sermon contained, like a regulation in some code, the exception itself was in direct opposition to the fundamental idea of Christ's teaching. I consulted the commentators of the Gospels, and all of them, John Chrysostom, page 365, and even theological critics like Roos, affirm that these words mean that Christ permits divorce if the wife has committed adultery, that in Christ's prohibition of divorce, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, where we read, saving for the cause of fornication, the words have that meaning. I read the thirty-second verse over and over again, and came to the conclusion that this interpretation of the words was erroneous. In order to verify my opinion, I examined the context, and found, earlier in chapter 19 of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, in Mark 10, in Luke 16, and in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, a similar declaration of the indissolubility of the marriage tie, without exception of any kind. In the Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 16, verse 18, we read, Whoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is put away from her husband commits adultery. In the Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 10, verses 4 to 12, we read, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept, but from the beginning of the creation God made them male and female. For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother, and cleave to his wife, and the two of them shall be one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together do not let man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter, and he said to them, Whoever shall put away his wife, and marry another, commits adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband, and be married to another, she commits adultery. We find the same teaching in the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 19, verses 4 to 8. 
in the epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 7, verses 1 to 12, the statement that depravity may be prevented by husbands and wives never forsaking each other, nor defrauding each other of their rights, is enlarged upon, and it is distinctly said that neither shall the husband in any case forsake his wife for another woman, nor the wife leave her husband for another man. Thus we see that, according to the Gospels of Mark and Luke and the Epistle of Paul, divorce is wholly forbidden. According to the interpretation that husband and wife are one flesh, joined together by God, which we find repeated in two of the Gospels, divorce is forbidden. According to the sense of the whole doctrine of Christ, who exhorts us to forgive all, not excluding the wife who has gone astray, it is forbidden. According to the sense of the whole text, which clearly points out that a man's leaving his wife brings depravity into the world, it is forbidden. From where, then, is the conclusion drawn that a wife who has committed adultery may be divorced, and on what is it grounded? It is grounded on the very words of Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, which had so strangely struck me. It is alleged that these words prove that Christ permits divorce if the wife has committed adultery, and they are also repeated in the nineteenth chapter in numerous transcripts of the gospel, and by many of the fathers of the church, instead of the words, except it be for fornication. I read the words over and over again, and it was long before I could understand them. I saw that there was probably something incorrect in the translation and interpretation, but could not for some time make out what it was. That there was a mistake was obvious. Placing his commandment in opposition to that of the Mosaic law, which says that if a man hates his wife he may put her away, giving her a writing of divorcement, Christ says, But I say to you that whoever puts away his wife saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. There is no opposition in these words, and no mention made of the possibility or impossibility of divorce. We are only told that he who puts away his wife causes her to commit adultery, and then comes a clause that accepts the wife guilty of adultery, this exception is altogether strange and unexpected. It is indeed absurd, as it destroys even the dubious sense of the words. It is stated that the putting away of a wife causes her to commit adultery, and then the husband is exhorted to put away his wife if she is guilty of adultery, as if the wife who was guilty of adultery would not commit adultery. Moreover, on a closer examination of the text, I saw that it was even grammatically incorrect. It is said, Whoever puts away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causes her to commit adultery. Or if we translate the word parectos literally, besides fornication, causes her to commit adultery. The words refer to the husband who causes his wife to commit adultery by putting her away. Then why is the clause, cause of fornication, inserted? If it were said that the husband who puts away his wife, besides being guilty of fornication, commits adultery, 
the sentence would be grammatically correct. But as the text stands, the noun husband has one predicate, causes her, etc. And how does the phrase, saving for the cause of fornication, refer to it? Cannot cause her to commit adultery, saving for the cause of adultery? Even if the words wife or her were added, which is not the case, the words could have no reference to the predicate causes her. According to the accepted interpretation, these words are considered as referring to the predicate puts away, but the verb puts away is not the predicate of the principal sentence, for that is causes her to commit adultery. Therefore, for what purpose are the words saving for, or besides, the cause of fornication, inserted? Whether the wife is guilty of adultery or not, by putting her away, the husband causes her to commit that sin. The sentence would have a meaning if in the place of the word fornication we found the words lasciviousness, debauchery, or some similar word expressing not an action but a quality or a state. Doesn't it mean, I said to myself, that he who divorces his wife causes her to commit adultery, and is besides guilty of debauchery himself? For if a man divorces his wife, it is in order to take to himself some other woman. If the word used in the text is found to mean debauchery, then the sense will be clear. And again, as in the preceding instances, the text confirmed my surmise in a manner that left no room for doubt. What first struck me on reading the text was that the word porneia, which is in all translations except the English rendered as adultery in the same way as moikasthai, is in reality quite another word. Perhaps the two words are synonymous, or are used in the gospel in the same sense, I thought. So I referred both to the common dictionary and to the evangelical glossaries, and found that the word porneia, which is equivalent to the Hebrew zono, the Latin fornicatio, the German hurerei, has its own definite meaning, and in no dictionary is it considered as signifying adultery, adultère, eobruch, as it has been translated by Luther. It properly implies a depraved state or disposition, and not an action, and cannot therefore be translated by the word adultery. Moreover, I saw that the word adultery is always expressed in the gospel, and even in the above-named verses, by another word, moikeo, and no sooner had I corrected this evidently intentional perversion of the text than I saw that the sense given to the context of the nineteenth chapter, and by our commentators, was altogether impossible. I saw that there could be no doubt about the word porneia referring only to the husband. Every Greek scholar will construe the passage thus. Parektos, besides, logo, the matter, Porneas of lewdness, poie causes, alten her, moikasthai, to commit adultery. Therefore, the text stands word for word thus. He who divorces his wife, besides the sin of lewdness, causes her to commit adultery. 
we find exactly the same in the nineteenth chapter. No sooner is the incorrect translation of the word pornea amended, as well as that of the preposition eti, which has been translated for, no sooner is the word lewdness placed instead of adultery, and the preposition by instead of for, then it grows perfectly clear that the words emer epipornea can have no reference to the wife, and as the words parectos logoporneas can have no other meaning than besides the sin of lewdness of the husband, so the words emer epipornea, which we find in the nineteenth chapter, can have no reference to anything except the lewdness of the husband. It is said, emer epipornea, which, being translated literally, is, if not by lewdness, if not out of lewdness. And thus the meaning is clear that Christ in this passage refutes the notion of the Pharisees that a man who put away his wife not out of lewdness, but in order to live matrimonially with another woman, did not commit adultery. Christ says that the repudiation of a wife, even if it is not done out of lewdness, but in order to be joined in bonds of matrimony to another woman, is adultery. And thus the sense is simple, clear, perfectly consistent with the whole doctrine, and both logically and grammatically correct. It was with great difficulty that I at last discovered this clear and simple meaning of the words themselves, and their harmony with the whole doctrine of Christ. And, in truth, read the words in the German or French versions where it is said, pour cause d'infidélité, or à moins que cela ne soit pour cause d'infidélité, and you will hardly be able to guess that the text has quite another meaning. The word parectos, which according to all dictionaries means excepte, ausgenommen, is translated in the French by a whole sentence, à moins que cela ne soit. The word pornea is translated infidélité, eobruch, adultery, and on this intentional perversion of the text is based an interpretation that destroys the moral, religious, grammatical, and logical sense of Christ's words. And once more I received a confirmation of the truth that the meaning of Christ's doctrine is simple and clear. His commandments are definite and of the highest practical importance, but the interpretations given to us based on a desire to justify existing evils, have so obscured his doctrine that we can with difficulty fathom its meaning. I felt convinced that had the gospel been found half burnt or half obliterated, it would have been easier to discover its true meaning than it is now, that it has suffered from such unconscientious interpretations which have purposely concealed or distorted its true sense. In this last instance, the special object of justifying the divorce of some Ivan the Terrible, which thus led to the misrepresentation of the Christian doctrine of matrimony, is more obvious than in the preceding cases to which reference has been made. No sooner are all these interpretations thrown aside than vagueness and mistiness fade away, and the second commandment of Christ rises plainly before us. 
take no pleasure in concupiscence. Let each man, if he is not a eunuch, have a wife, and each woman a husband. Let a man have but one wife, and a woman one husband, and let them never, under any pretext whatever, dissolve their union. Immediately after the second commandment, we find a new reference to the ancient law, and the third commandment is given. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37. Again, you have heard that it has been said to the people long ago, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord your oaths. Leviticus 19, verse 12, Deuteronomy 23, verse 21. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black, but let your word be yes, yes, or no, no, for whatever is more than these comes from evil. In my former readings of the Gospel, this text had always puzzled me, not by its obscurity, as the text referring to divorce did, nor by its inconsistency with other passages, as did the text that forbids anger only if it is without a cause, nor again by the difficulty of fulfilling the commandment, like the text that enjoins our letting ourselves be struck. It puzzled me, on the contrary, by its evident clarity and simplicity. Side by side with precepts, the depth and importance of which filled me with awe, I found an apparently useless, insignificant precept, very easy of fulfilment, and comparatively unimportant in its bearing upon myself or upon others. I had never sworn by Jerusalem, or by God, or by anything, and had never found any difficulty in abstaining from doing so. Besides, it seemed to me that my swearing or not swearing could be of no importance to anyone. And longing to find some explanation of a precept that puzzled me by its simplicity, I consulted the commentaries on the gospel. This once they helped me. Commentators see in these words a confirmation of the third commandment of Moses, not to swear by God's name. They say that Christ, like Moses, forbids our taking God's name in vain. But they add besides that this precept given to us by Christ is not always obligatory, and that in no case does it refer to the oath of allegiance to the existing powers which every citizen is obliged to take. They choose out texts from Holy Scripture, not with the purpose of confirming the direct meaning of Christ's precept, but in order to prove that it is possible, and even necessary, to leave it unfulfilled. It is affirmed that Christ himself sanctioned the taking of an oath in courts of law by his answer, You have said, to the high priest's words, I charge you under oath by the living God. It is likewise affirmed that the Apostle Paul called upon God to bear witness to the truth of his words, and that this was obviously an oath. It is affirmed that the Mosaic law enjoined oaths, and that Christ did not abrogate them, and only set useless, pharisaically hypocritical oaths aside. 
and when I saw the meaning and the true object of the interpretation, it grew clear to me that Christ's law against swearing was not as insignificant and easy of fulfilment as I had thought before I came to regard the oath of allegiance as one of those that are forbidden by Christ. And I said to myself, doesn't it mean that the oath, which is so carefully fenced around by the church commentaries, is also forbidden? Don't Christ's words oppose the very oath without which the division of men into separate governments would be an impossibility, the oath without which a military class would be impossible? Soldiers are those who act by violence, and they call themselves sworn men. Had I asked the grenadier, I mentioned in a preceding chapter, how he solved the problem of the inconsistency between the gospel and the military code, he would have answered that he had taken an oath, that is, sworn upon the gospel. All the military men I ever asked answered thus. Oaths are so essential in upholding the awful evils brought about by war and violence that in France, where Christ's doctrine is entirely set aside, the oath of allegiance remains in full force. Indeed, had Christ not said, Do not swear at all, he ought to have said so. He came to destroy evil, and how great is the evil brought about in the world by the taking of oaths. Perhaps some may urge that this was an imperceptible evil in Christ's time, no assumption can be more gratuitous. Epictetus and Seneca enjoined all men to take no oaths. In the laws of Manu, the same precept may be found. Why should I say that Christ did not see this evil when he speaks of it so definitely and so forcibly? He says, I say to you, do not swear at all. The saying is as clear, as simple, and as indubitable as the words, do not judge, do not condemn, and it gives as little scope for false interpretation, the less so because the words, let your communication be yes, yes, or no, no, for whatever is more than these comes from evil, are added. Now, if Christ, by this teaching, exhorts us always to fulfil the will of God, how dare a man swear to obey the will of another man? The will of God may not always coincide with the will of man. Christ tells us so in this very text. He says, in verse 36, Do not swear by your head, for not only your head, but every hair on it, is subject to the will of God. We find the same thing taught in the epistle of James, who says, in chapter 5, verse 12, but above all things, my brethren, do not swear, neither by heaven, neither by earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, lest you fall into condemnation. The apostle tells us why we are not to swear. Though the taking of an oath may be no sin in itself, he who swears falls into condemnation, and therefore shall no man swear. Can any language be clearer than the words of Christ and of this apostle? 
but my ideas on this point were in so confused a state that for some time I went on asking myself with surprise, does the precept really mean this? How is it that all swear by the gospel? It cannot be. But I had read the commentaries on the gospel and saw that what I deemed impossible had nevertheless been done. The same remark has to be made in reference to this as to the texts do not judge, do not give way to anger, never break the union of husband and wife. We have set up our own institutions, we love them and choose to consider them sacred. Christ, whom we acknowledge to be God, comes and he says that our rules of life are bad. We acknowledge him to be God yet we do not choose to set our rules of life aside. What is left then for us to do? When, by inserting the words without a cause, we turn the commandment against anger into a meaningless sentence, when, like crafty lawyers, we interpret the sense of the commandment in a manner that gives it a contrary meaning to that designed by him who spoke it, as we do if instead of prohibiting altogether the putting away of a wife, we declare divorce to be lawful and just, we put our institutions in the place of truth. But if it is impossible to interpret the words otherwise than as I have indicated, in the treatment of the precepts do not judge, do not condemn, do not swear at all, then we boldly act in direct opposition to Christ's doctrine, while asserting that we strictly fulfil it, if we cleave to traditional interpretations. The chief obstacle to our understanding that the gospel wholly forbids our taking an oath is that the so-called Christian teachers boldly insist upon men's taking oaths upon the gospel, and in this acting contrary to the gospel. How can it come into the head of a man who is made to take an oath on the gospel or the crucifix, that the crucifix is sacred for the very reason that he who forbade our swearing was crucified upon it? He who takes the oath perhaps kisses the very passage that so clearly and definitely says, do not swear at all. But such boldness no longer confounded me. I clearly saw that in the fifth chapter, verses 33 to 37, lay the third definite and practicable commandment of Christ, which may be stated, Never take an oath under any circumstances. Every oath is extorted from men for evil. End of the first part of chapter 6